You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. What's up, Resonate? We are in Jonah. We're still in this incredible story of this prophet and the God who calls him and this fish that comes along the way and the people of Nineveh. And, uh, and it's an incredible story. And, and I hope that we get to continue to press in. As we press into this um, today, uh, I want us to really open our hearts because I really think that God has something to say to us today. I, I am, when I read the story and just in general in life, I'm fascinated um, by people that make major life changes that are rooted in their habits. And one of the, one of the I mean, there's all kinds of different things that happen where people are, are like, hey, this is kind of who I was, and man, I made this massive shift. Maybe it's a, a shift of vocation or, or geography. But one of the things that amazes me most when people make this major change in their life is when you see someone who's like really obese, like lose a bunch of weight, like lose hundreds of pounds, and, and then they're like this skinny person. And it's just this fascinating thing, like when you see the pictures, the before and the after picture, and it's like crazy different, like you can't even recognize these kind of people. And it's like, this is who I was before, and then just lost all this weight, and here's who I am now. And it is just, every time I, I see this, like there's something about these stories and about seeing that that makes me just a little bit like emotional, because there's something that's way more than like skin deep with that. That's more than just uh, a body type change. There's something at a deep level that happens because uh, you, you don't end up getting into those situations with your body unless there's something that's, um, uh, that's connected at a very deep level. There's, there's baggage, there's issues, there's bondage, stuff like that. But this is typically how that comes out of that. And to be able to see someone go from that you know, stark image and change dramatically is really fascinating to me. I, I find myself really connected and I lean in and I'm like, I want to know that story. I, I remember having a I mean, this is a ridiculous and strange conversation about, I mean, it's like the, when the very beginning uh, of my marriage uh, to Paige, and, uh, and at that point, it's kind of that same thing. I, I looked at that, I looked at these, these pictures and stories, and, um, and I was like, this is amazing. And, uh, and I said to her one time, this is so dumb, I said, uh, I almost want to become like obese and then to like lose all the weight just so I could have that story. Like I kind of want to do something like that. And, and my wife looks at me and she's like, you could never do that. You're like 160 pounds. And, uh, and, and so, I mean, 17 years later, I'm, I'm like 172. So Paige, you're not going to crush my dreams, right? I'm well on my way. <laughs> Well, on my way to this, but it's one of those things when you begin to see um, what uh, what real change looks like, what absolute like this was this way in my life, and it became that way in my life, and it's compelling to me about how, really how do people change? Like, how do you change? How is it that if you're going in one direction, that something significant happens and allows you to go t- to another direction? And how, what does it look like when you begin to walk into something and you begin to change? And one of the things that's so compelling to me about this is that whenever I see change, there's a hopefulness because whatever it is that's an issue in your life and in my life, if we begin to change, if we have the capacity to be able to transform our lives or be able to change something, then there's always hope. 
There's always hope in whatever we do, and there's always hope in what we begin to see this. And so I want, to, I want us to press into this and ask, what does it look like for us to change? How do we begin to move towards change? And what does it look like for us to actually have a lifestyle that's radically turned around in a different trajectory? And some of you are here, and, and maybe you need a different trajectory. Some of you need a different trajectory, but you don't even realize it yet. Um, and that's my prayer in this moment, that we begin to understand what does it look like when God transforms people. And so we get into this story, um, and we've been here last, uh, last week, Matthew continued to walk us through like the grace of God and, and, and through this story, how we begin to see so evidently that God has Jonah's good and the, and the good of the people at, at Nineveh, and it is just this overwhelming amount of grace. And how do we begin to respond to this? And so I, I want us to start, before we get into this, with just some foundational principles that we've walked through. Uh, the first one is this. It's that everyone runs. When we begin to think about this, we started off with this idea that Jonah's story is our story. That there's moments in our life where we clearly understand either specifically as God speaks to us uniquely or generally as God has told everybody of the direction that we are supposed to go, the way that we are supposed to live. And we... we it's not like we don't know what God says, but we simply say, nope, not going to do that. You say go this way. I want to go this way. And there's a point for all of us that I believe that we run from God. And right now you might be running from God. There might be a significant moment in your life, a decision that you're making right now, a lifestyle that you're living, and you know what God wants and you just don't want to do it. And I believe that this is a story for us, and we have to understand we all run. We're a collection of runners. But when we run, we bring chaos into our life. Anytime we run, either immediately or in a delayed context, we bring the chaos into our life. When we choose our direction over God's direction, inevitably there's a moment where chaos begins to become very present in our life. It abounds in our life. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's not only your life that this happens to, but it's the lives of people around you. That when you walk away from God and you walk into chaos, it doesn't just affect your life. It affects your friends. It affects your spouses. It affects, it affects your kids. It affects the people around you. And they get brought into the chaos because of your choices. And here's the reality. We can run from God but we can't outrun God. And this is this beautiful thing that even in the moments where we turn away from God and say, hey, God, I'd rather do my thing than your thing. God is pursuing you. I want you to get this, that God is pursuing you, that you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And sometimes you don't want his pursuit. And sometimes his pursuit of you brings you into situations that you don't necessarily like. But the great news is that God is after your best and he is pursuing you. You can out or you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And God, here's the last part that we've been building on. God reveals his grace in the midst of chaos. That God reveals his grace in the midst of chaos. And so when the chaos is surrounding, when it gets crazy in your life, when it seems like there's some significant distress that it's happening, that in those moments, we begin to have our eyes opened to the very grace of God. And those moments, and when we begin to see the moments where grace becomes not just an, an idea, but it becomes a very front and center reality, that's when our hearts are bound to the, to the hearts of our Father. And so today we get to see this moment. 
And we get to see from a guy that gets thrown off the boat to a guy who gets spit up onto a shore, a turning moment. And I hope that you lean into this because it's a turning moment that helps us to understand what it looks like when we begin to have a trajectory change in our life. And if you can begin to believe in a trajectory change that God can create in your life, there's hope for anything that's happening in your life. And so we are in um, the very last verse of chapter one, and we're going to go through most of chapter two. Here's what it says. It says, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. I want you to get that the Lord provided this. Like, it was just not happenstance. He didn't just look like good bait um, that is thrown over. This is God's provision. And so you need to understand the, the massive grace um, moment that happens here that God provides this. That God provides a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish... Jonah prayed, I bet he did, to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents, and the currents swirled about me, and all your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. But the engulfing waters threatened me and the deep surrounded me. And then it gets very specific here. And the seaweed was wrapped around my head. If you think, I'm not sure if this is real or not, this is a very specific thing that he's like, seaweed wrapped around my head. This is how it happened. To the roots of the mountain, I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. And this is a really key phrase. Anytime you see, but the Lord, you need to like pay attention but you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you in your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is this moment, this Jonah moment, from thrown off the boat to swallowed by the fish to vomited onto dry land. Like there's something that happens, right? And this is an extreme circumstance of something that happens, but it's an illustration of what God does to bring people into alignment with him. And I want you to get that in this, that as we begin to see what's happening in this, there's a moment that Jonah has, and this moment is really this, this massive shift, this repentance and surrender moment that he has. And when we begin to recognize this is, is a moment of God's grace, this is a moment where grace is given to him in the chaos, we begin to know that we can have the potential to experience the same kind of moment that Jonah had in this moment of really being able to have a response of repentance and surrender. But in this, I believe that, man, when we have this, when we have a moment where we are in distress and we're calling out to God and we don't deserve it, but God shows up. And when God shows up, grace abounds into every nook and cranny of our life. We are drenched in God's grace that that is a moment that you'll never forget. That is a moment that deeply seals your heart to your heavenly father's heart. It's the thing that you begin to say, 
I believe more than anything else, it becomes incredibly real to you. Something that is spiritual becomes very, very real and very, very close to you. When you get to the end of your rope and you begin to experience the grace of God, when you begin to have your, your wrongs made clear and you begin to understand what you should do now to turn from the way that you are going to a new direction. This is what happens with Jonah. And I want you to get that for each and every one of us, when we recognize that, it's one of the most profound experiences that we can have. And being able to turn, being able to repent is a key understanding of what it looks like for us as we experience God. And in this, I want us to get this, that when we begin to have this experience of God's grace in the moment of our need and the moment of our surrender, this is the experience of the Christian life. In fact, when we begin to experience this, if this becomes a regular and routine part of our life, this is for us what it looks like for us to be mature in Christ. What is spiritual maturity? It's having moments of repentance and surrender regularly. You see God clearly and you see yourself clearly and you see God's grace and it draws you in. It melts your heart. It softens you. It changes you. It transforms you. And I believe if you're a follower of Christ here that you've had at least one of these moments and at least one of these moments where you began to say clearly, I understand that who God is. I understand who I am and I understand God's grace and that grace draws me in to God. And this is where the reality of most mature Christians and where they live. This is the regular experience. And so maturity in Christ, and I'm not saying how long you followed after Christ, but I'm just saying how deeply you're connected with God is directly tied to the amount of repentance and surrender that you have actively engaged in your life. <laughs> the amount of maturity that you have in your life is deeply connected to the ways by which you proclaim he is God and you surrender and repent to his ways and not your ways. That's maturity. It's not length of time. It's not anything else. It's your response to who God is. Here's the issue. In this, everything in our world works against our ability to do this. Baby Christians, this is it, are people that struggle to be able to have active repentance and surrender to God. And in this, I want you to understand how this happens. The lack of, of repentance is not a new thing. We see this all throughout the Bible. But I want us to get that in our day and age, right now, where we sit, in our culture, everything is working against you becoming a mature follower of Jesus and becoming someone who repents and surrenders to the ways of Jesus and ultimately transforms your life and has the capacity to change. And here's why. We live in a culture that is surrounded and embedded with an ethos of non-judgmental affirmation for everything. That around us, the ethos is that we are to be non-judgmental. The ethos is that we are to be people who are absolutely accepting of all things and all people and all decisions that all people make. And this is kind of the way by which we live. 
That we are to, to, to ultimately say, we, we, we choose tolerance and we choose this, this context of you do you and you be you and you're unique and whatever is right for you is right for you. And we are to all be able to say, okay, that's just how we are to operate. And I shouldn't tell someone else how to live and I shouldn't be able to redirect anybody and I shouldn't ultimately say that's wrong because we live in a world that's saturated with this understanding of non-judgmentalism of affirm, affirmation, of our expectation is that someone's not going to speak against any choices that we make, that someone's not going to come against anything that we think, that we believe, that we act out, that we behave, that we think, and this is something that in many cases is very good. There's a lot of good things with this. The problem is that the entire ethos of our, of our world basically says, you don't have to change. You do you. You act as you want to act. And embedded in all of this is you just do what you want to do, which makes us the king of everything that we do in our life, right? It, which makes us the person who chooses everything, which makes us very, very inept at ultimately changing because our muscles of repentance are emaciated. We don't get to use these muscles of us saying, I'm wrong and you're right and I need to change. This doesn't get ultimately exercised in our world. And so our capacity to repent and our capacity to surrender is very, very weakened. Do you get this? A lot of ways this is great. But I want you to get, if the key thing to your spiritual maturity is your capacity to be able to understand how to repent and how to surrender, you have been discipled by a culture that has led you astray. You have been discipled in a culture that ultimately doesn't allow you to experience that in an ongoing way that you might get better and better and more adept and have more practice and experience being able to repent for the things that you do. Therefore, because we have so much of our world that ties into our personhood, right? We are implicitly discipled against the ways of Jesus. We are implicitly discipled against radically changing our life. We are implicitly discipled uh, uh, from being able to make small changes in our life every day that allows us to ultimately look more like Jesus. And this is an issue. What's fascinating about this is not only is this an issue, but we have concurrent to that an ironic reality that not only are we living in the most affirmation or affirming uh, culture in the world, we also concurrently are some of the most insecure and fragile people. We have within us a desire for defensiveness to explain ourselves, to make sure that our world isn't disrupted by the haters, right? Isn't disrupted by people who would redirect us. We are in the most fragile and insecure context that I think society has ever been in. And so how can these two things coexist that we have this affirmation culture and this insecure culture, it seems like they don't work, except there's a biblical principle behind all of that that you need to hear today. And that is this. When you have both of these that coexist simultaneously, it means that grace doesn't exist. It means that we ultimately live in a graceless world. 
It means that we don't understand ultimately who we are because the belief that we have is not only am I not to say something against other people, but I am to act in a way that ultimately relates to how I believe myself to be. And the thing that we ultimately believe in most cases is that we are good people and that we have good hearts and that we are just misunderstood and we make mistakes except that's fundamentally different than how the Bible articulates humanity. That we aren't good people that make mistakes. Here's what, the, here's what God says about us. Here's what the Bible says. It says that ultimately we have an evil heart. That we need a heart that demands a savior. And so God sends his son Jesus to this earth to live out his calling, his mission on earth, ultimately to allow our evil hearts to be covered with his blood, that we might be right before God and have a relationship with God and to be fully accepted by God. Not because we're good people trying to be, you know, make the minimum amount of mistakes, but because we are evil people with depraved hearts. And so here's what happens. If you're a good person, you protect your goodness, right? And it makes you insecure because you and I, we all know in our deepest parts of ourself, we're not as good as our social media makes us look. We're not as good as our outward display makes us look. We manage the outward display so that people think something about us that we know at our very core isn't true. Therefore, we're very insecure and very fragile. But here's what I want you to know. Here's the good news that doesn't sound like good news. You're evil. And I'm evil. And we have a heart that is evil. And it demands a savior. The better news that's not so hard to hear is that you've been so loved by your heavenly father that he sent his son to be able to cover your wickedness and to cover your heart and ultimately to take your heart and replace it with his heart and to give you something new and to give you something better and to cover and saturate your world with grace. And this allows you to be a secure individual. This allows you not to be fragile, but to be able to say, yes, I expect that my heart is going to do things that don't look like God, and this is why I need God. And it, I don't fall apart when these things happen. I know that there's consequences, but I understand that God is making me into his image. Now, the other thing too, is that when you begin to understand yourself and your need for grace, Here's what happens. You begin to have this moment where you look around to other people and you begin to realize they have the same heart that you are, have and they're wicked just like you are good and they have a depraved heart just like you do. And then what happens is we begin to live in a grace-filled world because we apply to others the same understanding that we apply to us. So we don't live where we're throwing darts and we're all defensive and how could you say that? We know that when we are around other people that they're operating out of their depravity too and they need the grace of God too. And here's what happens is that when you begin to understand your need for repentance, you begin to live a radically different life. See, when you don't really think that you're that bad and really need a God that big, you don't really share your faith that much. You don't really tell other people that they need what you have because you don't really need what you have either. That your, your worship is hollow and your prayers are weak because you don't understand the depth of the need that you have for God. But when you begin to know, I deeply need repentance and I deeply need you to show up, God, then what you begin to say is, so do you. And what we begin to have are people that begin to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those around them because they know that those people need to repent too because they have depraved hearts, because they have wicked hearts, because they're not just good people making mistakes. And then we begin to see our societies. 
when we all think that we're just basically good people that sometimes make mistakes and don't really need to change, then we don't really begin to look at our world and begin to say, hey, Jesus needs to do something about this, and the church needs to do something about this. My desire for us resonate is that we would be people that begin to change so significantly that the world begins to see the impact of the gospel in our life, not just in a belief system, but the actual way you live your life. Because when you begin to repent and you begin to look like Jesus, you wake up and say, I, I begin to understand this is what Jesus wants and I need to shift and I need to shift. And maybe it's not the 180 that happens in one fell swoop. For some of you, it is. But maybe it's every single day or many times for you to begin to say, I don't need to experience the grace of God today because I need to repent of me choosing to run my way when, and not running God's way. And you begin to be somebody who transforms your life and other people around you begin to say, you're not the same person. How exciting would that be for your life if you begin to understand that through your repentance to God's ways that you could begin to change your life, that you could begin to transform your life and people begin to look at our church on our campus and in our community and they begin to understand this is a group of people that don't look the same. This is a group of people that God's evidently doing something. There's good news that happens here. And in this, we begin to replace gracelessness with a grace-filled life. We stop being fragile. We stop being defensive. We start being people who apply grace to ourselves and begin to apply that to the other people around us. And in this, man, we need to understand who we are. See, good people make mistakes, but sinful people need God's grace. And for you to understand what it looks like is absolutely key. This is, this is how movement starts. And we're praying for a movement. And I want you to get that movements start with repentance. That the great awakenings that have happened in our world, or sorry, in our, in our country, have all started with a group of people that began to say, who we are doesn't look like Jesus, and we're running from this, and we need to run towards him, and we need to radically repent of who we were and to be able to run towards Jesus. And as people begin to do that, and people begin to watch their life, what happens is there's a movement, there's a spread that happens, and it all begins not with just some slick preacher, it begins with people that repent. It is the impact, movement starts with the impact of, of, of people that begin to see people who've repented, and it begins to sweep across. This is how everything started about 500 years ago. Martin Luther nailed to this door his theses, and it started with this reality that it says this, the very first line of this says, Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And Protestantism started from this action that began with the first line that God willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And it seems like that's bleak, but Luther believed Luther seemed to be saying that Christians will never make much progress in this life. That is, of course, outside of the progress we make in the Christian life. Tertullian, an early church father, says, I was born for no other end but to repent. There's a, a, a woman in our church a few years ago that shot a video and, uh, and basically this is a video, um, talking about, uh, it was basically giving advice to people who are looking at someone to date. 
And she said, the number one thing I can say um, in, in terms of who to choose and how do you make a choice is find a man who repents often and regularly and go after that guy. It'll turn out well for you. And I'd never heard that before. And it made incredible sense that it's not about how attractive they are or how much connection that we have or the things that are similar that we have. What she's saying is so true that if you will look at someone who has a robust repentance life, you understand that throughout all the changes, that's someone that you can have a covenant relationship with and have deep trust in because you know that their heart is being malleable, that their heart is being transformed by God. And the people that you want to connect with in terms of covenant marriage are people who are going to have a robust life of repentance because you know that you can trust that God is continuing to work on them. One of the horror stories is I married this guy or I married this girl and then something happened and it got, and they turned out to be crazy. You know, they turned out to be not who I thought they were. If you will set your sights on someone who repents well, I promise you it will go well for you. If you will say, I'm going to value that above looks that are going to fade because gravity wins. <laughs> it's going to go really well for you. And so how do you do this? Let me give you, let me give you four things to help you to understand how I, I want, I want us not just to think of repentance in an ambiguous term, but I want to give you four things to basically say, Hey, this is what it looks like. Number one, I want you to understand that repentance starts with the sight of sin. Repentance starts with the sight of sin. And, and what we talk about, uh, when we talk about seeing sin, this is when the Holy spirit begins to move into your life and convicts you. This is called conviction when you begin to recognize that there's sin, for some of you right now, the Holy Spirit is moving towards you and there's conviction you're feeling. There's something that is this beautiful feeling of guilt, right? And, and our world says, hey, you don't want to feel any guilt. But there's a beautiful kind of guilt when it begins to illuminate what you should repent about. And, and this is something that as you begin to move towards this and you begin to understand repentance and you begin to understand this is the conviction, do not do not allow this to pass by. So some of you have been ignoring conviction. Some of you have been ignoring the moment that you have to be able to repent because you're like, I just don't, I know that I'm not supposed to be doing this. I know that this is not how I should be acting, behaving, whatever, but I want it. This is conviction. And it starts off with the side of sin. Uh, it's sometimes very difficult for us to see this. I read random stuff. I recently read about um, Febreze and how Febreze started. You understand what Febreze is, right? The spray thing that eliminates odor. Um, they, this guy created this, this chem chemical thing that eliminated odor. And they're like, this is incredible. We're going to make a ton of money. And so they begin to market it to people that needed their odors controlled. And so if you had a context where you had odor and you needed to control that odor, we have the thing for you. It's called Febreze. And it was a flop. It was a failure. They couldn't, they couldn't sell it to anyone. Here's why. The lady with 13 cats doesn't know that her apartment smells. She's gotten used to it. It's just her apartment. It's just the way it smells. And here's the reality is that we get used to the things that are a part of our life and we don't sense the stench. We don't understand. Sometimes we lose sight of the sin. 
And the beautiful things is the Holy Spirit and people around us and the Bible all begin to give us sight and convict us to be able to allow us to smell. So here's what they did. They added odor to Febreze. If you didn't know this, Febreze used to be odorless, but they added odor so that even people that, that, that didn't understand what they did stunk or who they were stunk had an opportunity to smell better objectively. This is like the Holy Spirit. This is like a perfect illustration of the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> Febreze. Not really. So number one, uh, the side of sin. Number two, the confession of sin. Not only do you have to see it, but you've got to externalize it. Like this becomes real, repentance becomes real, and you begin to have this moment that changes you when you begin to have this place where you begin to recognize that you have to get this out of you. So if you write it down, even better, if you say it to someone, um, we have a mic down here and we're going to allow public confession to hear it. And I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you're like, oh no. Uh, <laughs> But here's this thing. I mean, these revivals, many of them, they would start with people just saying, hey, let's just have some public confession. And people begin to say, there's this synergistic reality when you take and say, hey, this is my sin, and I'm going to externalize it, and it becomes real. And all of a sudden, your need for grace when you say something out loud becomes so much more. When you think about it in your head, you justify it, and we kind of noodle it around, and we kind of just kind of allow ourselves to have this defensive posture and the self-justification, but when you begin to say, I'm going to write this down, I'm going to see my sin in black and white, I'm going to articulate this to someone else, it becomes profound, the amount of grace that you need in those moments. Our sight of sin, our confession of sin, this is a big one. Number three, our hatred of sin. There's a monk um, that, that was uh, discipling another younger, younger monk. And, uh, and he began to say, ask about um, just how do I control my desires? And they were strolling along the ocean and he waded out with him and he took the young guy's head and he dunked it underwater and held it there and pulled it up. And he said, what are your, and he put it right back down. And he did this three times until this guy's flailing around and he pulled him back up and he said, until you have a desire that's equivalent to your desire for air, then you're not going to be able to change. And so I want us to get to a place, not where we just like, I just don't like my sin or the, the, it's inconvenient. I don't like the consequences of when I do this and the chaos comes, but for us to hate sin, and for us to help our friends to hate sin, what does that look like for us to be able to take and be able to desire the holiness and the grace of God? And for us to be able to say, hey, I want my sin to be a stench. And we're not actually going to change in our life until our sin begins to make us sick. Until we hate it. And so if that thing you're looking at, if that action that you're doing if that desire that you have, if you don't start to hate that, you're not ultimately going to eradicate that and you'll just come right back to it. And then you'll get into this loop where you really won't change and you'll get into this place where you're like, how could I ever be transformed? The last thing is this. It's the actual turning from sin that we, in response to God's grace, begin to say, this is what I want to do with my life. And we begin to point our life in a new direction. Jonah, from getting thrown off the boat, to ultimately to, to getting spit up on, on the ground. This is a moment. And there's a key verse in this. 
that really helps us to understand what it looks like for us to turn. He says this in verse eight of chapter two. It says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. I want you to get those who cling to worthless idols. Ultimately, they turn away from God's love for them. Now, you will experience God's love in such a deep and intimate way when you experience his grace that just drenches you. But when you say, I'm still going to seek after that idol, I'm still going to go out after that thing, the joy that you will have in your life and your experience of God's love will begin to erode away. Will you take the courage and will you walk towards repentance? Is that something that would characterize your life right now? Would you say the one thing that you could be said about me is that I repent regularly and routinely, that I recognize that I am not who God needs me to be, and that is something I hate and turn away from. Bit by bit, on a regular basis. This is for your good. I know it's hard to be able to say, hey, you should repent, but I want you to understand that grace awaits on the other side, and the most profound moment of your life is when you experience God's grace in your time of need. And you have the moment that's a Jonah moment, from getting thrown off the boat to getting spit up on the land, the change that happens is connected to our capacity to say, your will done, not mine. I repent. See, this is what God is after. There's a guy in the Bible that we see, and he's articulated as a man after God's own heart. And it's a guy by the name of David. And David, who is king, takes in one day, sees this woman named Bathsheba and he lusts after her and ultimately he brings her into his palace and commits adultery with her. He takes and he kills her husband and goes on with his life. But there's a prophet, a truth teller named Nathan and Nathan comes to David and he begins to tell a story to David. And in this story, he tells of a man who's done something very wrong. And he doesn't use David, but David is the figure in that. And ultimately he says to David, what should be done with this man? And David responds, this man should be killed. And in one of the most dramatic moments in the Bible, Nathan turns around and says, you are that man. And it crushes David. He's a broken man. But I want you to hear what happens as he begins to read, or as he begins to respond to this. Here's Psalm 51. This is the psalm that happens that he writes immediately after he's broken over Nathan confronting him for his sin. It says this. I'm not going to have this on the screen. I want you just to listen to this, internalize this, hear the emotions of a man who is repenting. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are right to judge in your verdict when you justified, and you justified when you judge. 
Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb, and you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners return back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O Lord, for you are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, God, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. A man after God's own heart. Here's what I want you to get. We're going to close here. That no matter where you're at, no matter how far you've gone, that repentance doesn't mean that you have to walk all the way back to get to even. God meets you wherever you're at. All you have to do is turn back to him. Do not believe that there's penance to be paid to get back into the grace of God. God's grace meets you where you're at if you will just repent and surrender to your heavenly father. Let me pray for us. God, today give us the clarity to see our sinfulness. God, give us the courage to be able to call it what it is. Today, Lord, in this room, Lord, I pray that there would be men and women that repent. Maybe men and women that repent for the first time and say, God, you are God and I am not. Today, Lord, give us courage to be able to proclaim you and to experience your grace that sweeps over us. In their holy name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.